The music of Matthew Bertner is unlike anything I have ever heard before or since. His music can submerge the concert hall beneath water and ice, plunging listeners into the depths and exposing them to the minute squeaks, ripples, and cracks of ice. It can also lift you up to where the air is howling, but the light of the sun has never shone brighter. The wind dissipates to reveal rustling leaves, a babbling brook, and a deep rumbling that sounds like the physical exhalation of the earth. You are invited to listen intently, to follow the sound despite not quite knowing exactly what to listen for. You feel connected to it, and realize that it is actually just you, at one with the sounds around you, enveloped and enchanted. Matthew Bertner seems to effortlessly craft patchworks of sound containing both acoustic, electronic, and pre-recorded sounds in a way that blurs the line between what is natural and what is artificial. For him, the quotidian movements of the wind and waves are as suitable an instrument for musical composition as the piano or the violin. In fact, these traditional instruments, as it were, often commingle with naturally occurring sounds in a majority of his compositions. Similar to John Luther Adams, Bernard describes his music as, quote, not a portrait of the landscape, but something of the landscape, end quote. This musical quest to create harmony between the environment and man-made structures has driven him to establish his own method of music composition, which he calls musical ecoacoustics. Ecoacoustics, quote, embeds environmental systems into musical and performance structures." End quote. It relies on methods of capturing and manipulating sound like field recordings and sonification as part of the compositional process. Wait, Bertner's music echoes elements of Debussy's impressionist techniques while employing the mathematical models in a manner similar to that of Yannis Zanakis, and also manipulating recorded sounds using Pierre Schaeffer's musique concrète techniques. This combination of an ecological, data-driven compositional process with a Western musical syntax manifests the dichotomy between human and nature and forms a space for listeners to contemplate how they interact with their world around them on a daily basis.
A quick note about today's episode. There aren't too, too many recordings of Matthew's work, so I'm going to take this opportunity to do a lot more original sound design throughout this episode. Today's episode explores how Bertner uses different eco-acoustic procedures to create his compositions and how climate change activism intersects with his music. My name is Luke Helker, and you're listening to Ears to the Earth. Born and raised in a small fishing village in Alaska, Bertner grew up with an intimate relationship to his surroundings. This relationship bled into his musical studies. He's a classically trained saxophonist, but also spent his formative years experimenting with different ways to record the naturally occurring sounds around him, including snow and ravens. Despite this, as he entered academia, he omitted his bushwhacking upbringing from biographical statements in an effort to fit into the mold of his teachers and inspirations, who appeared to be more urban and sophisticated. With his classical training at odds with his affection for noise, he struggled to develop a musical voice that both mirrored the sounds he grew up with and that he could also feel comfortable sharing with his colleagues. Fortunately, Bertner would soon stumble across musical inspiration from some 20th century composers who had already achieved a sound that appealed to him. Yannis Zanakis' La Légion d'Air is one such example in which a seven-channel electroacoustic audio track combines instrumental sounds, electronic sounds, and noise to envelop the listener as if they're in the middle of the ocean. This piece would inspire Bertner to spend a year after college working in Zanakis' studio in Paris. Reflecting back on the experience, Bertner writes, quote, At that time, Zanakis was developing a new technique called Generational Dynamic Stochastic Synthesis, which was creating these super amazing computer sounds. Zanakis was very impressive. He embraced error, aliasing, and stochastics, and would compose music on the edge of chaos. The aesthetic was attractive to me, and reminded me of playing saxophone in the high winds on the fishing boats, the melody mixing with the waves into a blend of human nature music. Zanakis was doing it with mathematics, and I thought of doing it with the environment." End quote. Around the same time, Bertner was also exposed to the synthesized music of Barry Truix, specifically River Run, a piece which in fact does not contain any river sounds. Instead, it imitates a river using granular synthesis, a process by which small units of sound are produced and tightly packed together to create pitch and amplitude, much like the individual droplets in a river.
The convergence of these influences gave Bertner the confidence needed to embrace his Alaskan heritage as source material for his compositions. His early compositions rely heavily on noise and electronics to enhance or manipulate acoustic instruments. His meta-saxophone project was an early iteration of this concept that he developed in 1999 while studying at Stanford University's Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics. For this project, he affixed a computer microprocessor and microphone onto a tenor saxophone, resulting in an instrument that maintains its acoustic functionality while simultaneously becoming a controller, opening up the performer to an infinite array of sonic possibilities. Bertner has composed several works specifically for this instrument, including Noise Gate 67 and Incantation S4. These early works tend to embrace noise, granular synthesis, and extended performance techniques on the sax. Around the same time, Bertner was experimenting with how he could blend electronic sounds with natural objects. The first of these works was Mists, scored for stones and noise. There are several performance options for this piece, which requires one to three performers and welcomes audience participation. Each performer either rubs or taps their stones together in time with a prescribed tempo marking, while the audience members maintain their own tempo in response to the sounds they perceive around them. The effect of the stones alone creates a rain-like texture, but the tape part uses wind as the primary soundscape over which the performers employ the quote masking and blurring properties of noise to create an audio screen through which the listener perceives, performs a multi-dimensional rhythmic structure created by the stones." End quote. Having audience participation means that all the performers will not be beholden to the same tempi as the performers, inviting the randomness of sounds produced by the audience to make any given performance unique. The score also specifies that the stones are to be gathered locally before the performance, thereby encouraging those involved to further consider their relationship to their local environment. For example, I've performed this twice here in Kansas, and let me tell you, it is surprisingly very hard to find a lot of stones. Mists offers a taste of how eco-acoustic music can encourage audiences to reflect on the interconnectivity between themselves and nature. This relationship is central to Bertner's compositional style and is indicative of how his upbringing in Alaska has shaped his personality. He further expands upon these relationships in his first multimedia opera, Ukiuk Tulagak, which is a nubiak for The Winter Raven. Composed as part of his dissertation at Stanford between the years 1998 and 2002, the opera centers around eco-acoustic music reinforced with computers, surround sound playback, video projections, costumes, and choreography to illustrate behaviors in snow, ice, sunlight, and wind to portray aspects of environmental change in a quote-unquote personification of ecology. Ukiok Tulagak closely follows Anupiak mythology which believes that the world was created by a black bird, or raven in English, traveling through space and snow. The snow that fell from the raven's wings began to form a snowball, 
which the raven playfully rolled through the air until it was large enough to land on. Thus, the raven created the world from snow, which is the substance of life. Bertner summarizes the symbolism of the piece in his program notes as follows, quote, Winter Raven metaphorically connects the story with the ecological seasonal approach of winter. Snow was present originally along with Raven, so winter is taken as a symbol for renewal and genesis. In winter, everything is covered equally in a blanket of snow, unified under a single geographic contour. Freezing and covering, winter purifies and equalizes all things." End quote. The opera contains a three-act structure, which is typical in most operas and is based on the seasonal changes occurring from fall to winter. Each act also explores different physiological states based on the juxtaposition of time in relation to seasonal changes. As the story progresses from fall to winter, the abundance of light is soon tarnished by the forthcoming ice, moving from human drama to ecological drama. The final act, however, features many motifs from the first act that reflect on memory and cyclical processes of nature. Within each act, there are three different types of movements. One, a chamber music piece with video. Two, a story movement incorporating music, dance, and video. And three, a piece in which the human body or voice is used. This non-linear narrative is presented as possible dreams or anecdotes listeners might experience on this journey. I haven't been able to find any video of the opera being formed, but Bertner does list individual movements on his website, most containing recording segments. I'm going to try and provide a synopsis of the opera, but it's a little tricky because there are a lot of additional musical and visual instructions that are much easier to grasp when you're looking at the score. The first act represents the fall season and shows a family cutting wood and preparing for winter. The sound of wind occurs throughout the movement as a performer representing a woodcutter casually chops wood and hums a melody that is independent of the piano, which is slowly cycling through different motifs. The chamber piece in act one is Tignovic which translates to the time of leaves falling and birds flying. Scored for viola, alto saxophone, piano, noise generators, and video, Tignovic further reflects the seasonal changes from fall to winter. It illustrates changes like light and temperature, which typically move slower than the daily activities displayed in the first movement. Each instrument is assigned to an environmental parameter. Viola represents temperature, saxophone light, the piano wind, and the noise moves throughout all of these. The changes that occur within each parameter forms the basis of each instrument's melodic development, and the texture is a composite of all of these parameters intended to acoustically represent an environment as it transitions through fall. Act 1 closes with Siknik Unipkek, and features dancers and instrumentalists depicting the sun and its rays. One dancer is designated as the sun character and remains positioned in the center of the stage, while the other dancers, representing sunlight, move freely across the stage with pieces of mirror to reflect the yellow stage lights. 
The musicians are spread out across the stage and given different melodic lines, which may be played freely and freely chosen. Act 2 illustrates the transition into winter, during which, quote, industry is broken suddenly by the coming of ice and the freezing of everything, end quote. Bruckner achieves this with the movement Kunikluk, which translates to a horizon line obscured by blowing snow or ice. This movement reinforces the emergence of ice through its use of noise generators. The mist-like quality of this sound alone recalls Truex's music, but since Bertner is combining computer-generated noises with acoustic instruments, the overall texture is uniquely different, and in this case is meant to reflect the frost-covered tundra. Act 2 also features the controlled chaos of having eight dancers and eight percussionists and eight spoken voices, independently moving through different tempo changes in the movement Industrial Garden Lost Voices. Step one. As the voices step recite one, freely two. chosen texts, such as newspapers, technical step manuals, three. or anything step that seems appropriate to the idea of industry, the dancers, representing the voice of industry, move back and forth across the stage, gathering materials to create Euclidean structures displayed in the score. The score also notes that the structures should appear, quote, pointless and dysfunctional, rather than the perceived goal of a perfect structure. Throughout all of this, percussionists are performing on assorted metal instruments, preferably found instruments such as brake drums or anvils, in order to properly convey the sound of industry as it overwhelms the human voice. Act 2 concludes with Siku Unipkek, which is scored for four players on two glockenspiels, electronics and dance. As the glockenspiel players rapidly move through the melodic cells, the dancer, representing winter, performs the story of ice. Meanwhile, the accompanying dancers, representing ice, play additional bell sounds, including jingle bells or triangles. Although their part is not specifically notated, the composite texture of the glockenspiels and ice bells creates a flurry of ice and snow, much like a blizzard. Ideally, the dancer performing winter should be the same dancer who performed sun in Act 1, because this character is the main shamanic figure intended to personify the major natural forces and evoke the relationship between humans and nature. In Act 3, snow finally begins to fall. This act revolves around the idea of winter being a cycle for rebirth and regeneration. The sounds of wind first heard in Act 1 return in Anugi Anupkek as a gesture back to the first act. This is performed by several percussionists on low drums that also vocalize different syllables. Snowprints, the eco-acoustic chamber ensemble movement that highlights this act, incorporates the sound of snow crunching from a walk, along with flute, cello, piano, electronics, and video projections. The sounds of snow correspond with photographs displaying leaf impressions, animal tracks, and changes in light on the surface. The recorded sounds were also digitally altered to match the instruments to create two separate trios, one acoustic and one digital, allowing the electronic track of snow to meld the two together. 
the opera ends with the movement Winter Raven, in which the character Raven finally appears, represented by an electric violin that imitates different expressions gathered from recordings of real ravens. The appearance of Raven invokes the memory of the family first seen in Act 1 by broadcasting a recording of the family, pre-recorded or taken during a rehearsal prior to the performance. Despite the presence of snow falling at the end of the opera, the theme of cycles and rebirth exists in the optimism of knowing the seasons will continue to change, which gives hope for the future. In Winter Raven, the dancers and video projections illustrate the story of the Raven, while a rotating chamber ensemble represents different characters. Most prominent is the electric violin representing the voice of Raven. Equally important is the use of special masks, which are worn by the dancers and musicians that represent the traditional shamanic characters on which this opera is based. Bertner uses ecoacoustics to integrate Western European traditions with those of the Alaskan shamanic cultures. It is Bertner's desire to carefully weave Western and non-Western traditions in music that investigate each other's perspective on its sense of place and connection to the environment. The result is less a work of musical activism and more of an ambitious recreation of ancient folklore. Bertner's incorporation of technology throughout the work further serves as a bridge between physical and virtual movement and amplifies how culture and nature are inextricably linked in non-Western European art. It illustrates how cohabitating with nature is a deeply embedded value in traditional Alaskan culture. As we transition from myth to reality, there is one feature of Alaska's landscape that has inspired numerous compositions from Bertner, glaciers. He has written several pieces for and about glaciers, often in the form of elegies for these natural monuments that are evaporating from the world and reinforced by relevant data charting their decline. One such piece is Sikuigvik, written in 1998, which translates to The Time of Ice Melting, and is scored for piano and large ensemble. The subject of the piece is about ice breakup in Alaska which is actually a very normal process in nature. In fact, it is often celebrated by the people of the North as a portent for spring, similar to Groundhog Day in the US. Though not intentionally written as a piece about global warming, Bertner notes that the changes in the patterns of ice breakup should be a cause for concern. According to Bertner, the music for Sikuigvik, quote, looks at both aspects of the subject exploring the nostalgic, violent, and whimsical characterization of ice melt." End quote. To do this, Bertner took data displaying the levels of ice melt in Alaska and used that information to determine harmonic and melodic procedures. The piece starts with the piano playing a single note to represent the first cracks in the ice. As another crack appears, quote, another rivulet of water in the form of a sustained note is added and the harmony also modulates. These changes also determine the rhythm of the piece, and towards the end, the ice is almost completely melted, causing a flurry of notes that, quote, replace the sense of articulation created by the ice, and the sense of frozen sound is lost, end quote.
In 2010, he revisited this idea to compose ice prints, this time removing the ensemble and adding electronics. Written for piano and Arctic ice ecoacoustics, Ice Prince embodies data illustrating changes in the Arctic ice over the span of 40 years and translates it into music. Since this is a podcast, again, I can't really show you precisely how the graph is translated into music, but I've attached links in the description. After all, Bergner explains all of this way better than I ever could. The gist of the piece is that Bergner references a chart that depicts ice melting over the course of 40 years. Each page of the score focuses on one year of this graph, which is positioned above the piano score, and below the piano score is a third graph providing amplitude of the ice, which the performer is instructed to interpret as instructions for dynamics. Burton uses traditional notation to aid in the performer's understanding of how the music fits into the overarching data structure, a unique trait that correlates with most of his works. Bertner also includes explicit instructions as to how this notation should be understood when realizing this piece. Over the course of 20 minutes, the piano slowly moves down the octaves of the piano, representing the gradual yet relatively rapid decay of the Arctic ice over time. The audience is able to aurally immerse themselves below the ice and hear the subtle changes that are caused by this process. Using sonification to capture this change, Bertner submerged hydrophones, which are microphones designed to be placed underwater, beneath the Arctic ice in order to record the ice melting in real time. These hydrophones were triangulated over a kilometer in a similar manner to how scientists and military officials track animals or submarines. As with most of Bertner's pieces, the accompanying electronic parts are best presented through an array of speakers that surround the audience. In this instance, the recordings gathered from the hydrophones are processed through harmonic filters and played back through a three-channel surround system with each speaker corresponding to a hydrophone. The speakers are then triangulated around the concert hall to surround the audience and make them feel as though they themselves are situated underneath the ice. In 2015, then-President Barack Obama became the first president to visit Alaska and witness firsthand the effects of climate change in the region. During his visit, he convened with foreign ministers of Arctic nations and indigenous representatives, as well as scientists and policymakers, to present the Glacier Conference, Glacier standing for Global Leadership in the Arctic, Cooperation, Innovation, Engagement, and Resilience. The conference was reinforced with panels and exhibits, educating the public and policymakers on how climate change has affected the area and what types of action could be implemented to stall or stop the trajectory of such changes. Additionally, and perhaps most intriguingly, the U.S. State Department reached out to Bertner and other artists to present their work as means for displaying other perspectives on climate change. Bertner composed Threnody Sikuigvik as a sound installation in the Anchorage Museum. Its sound emanated from a large ice sculpture in the museum that was created by architect Garrett Bertner. The sound was also to be interstitially placed throughout the Glacier Conference. Threnody is another interpretation of Bertner's earlier work, Sikuigvik from 1998. Adding Threnody to the title marks the dramatic change and loss of ice since the late 90s when Sikuigvik was first composed. Threnody is written for an open instrumentation ensemble with Glacier Ecoacoustics. 
A recent recording of the sound installation version, without live instruments, was recently released on Bertner's 2019 album Glacier Music, along with Mir Glacier 1889-2009 and Soundcast of the Matanuska Glacier, all of which were commissioned by the U.S. State Department under President Obama. Imagine witnessing an opera where every performer is in a different location. It's actually pretty commonplace now, thanks to many of the creative minds who have adapted Zoom and other online platforms for artistic endeavors. However, in 2012, such an experience was far from common. Nevertheless, Bertner's creative ambition drove him towards a very extensive collaboration, this one designed to bring the devastation of climate change to life. Auxlach, or Melting Snow, is a telematic opera, meaning that it is performed worldwide at different venues simultaneously. In order to achieve this, the internet is harnessed as a vehicle for transmitting information and connecting the disparate locations for the performance. Co-composed with Scott Deal, Bertner also collaborated with chief scientist Hajo Eichen to gather data and create a narrative of shared experiences felt and communicated both literally and figuratively across the planet. The opera follows several narratives that take place over the course of approximately 40 years. The first is a fictional narrative about a boy who grew up in the Arctic, leaves his home to live abroad, and returns upon learning of the dramatic changes that have occurred over the decades. This particular narrative is meant to be an avatar for people's contemporary relationship to their environment. The second narrative is manifested through interviews with scientists that discuss global changes and consequences of global warming. Their recorded interviews and data appear throughout the opera. The third narrative takes place in the form of recorded ice ecoacoustics. These recordings are played to show the linearity of environmental change through these 40 years, punctuated by the moment-to-moment -moment changes in the ice heard through the recordings. Having the opera occur in several places simultaneously is further meant to illustrate the quote, paradoxical feeling of closeness and simultaneous disconnectedness. End quote. The experience of composing Oxalak and working with the U.S. State Department shows how Bergner often collaborates as a part of his writing process. Bergner appears to be very open to any opportunity to interact with representatives from other disciplines with a shared goal. This is particularly evident in Bergner's most recent work, Avian Telemetry, in which Bergner worked with several faculty members of different disciplines from Furman University to create a piece focused on bird songs. A biologist for the university named John Quinn brought forth data suggesting that some bird song pitches were raising over time to compete with urbanization. This data was combined with Romantic era literature collected by Mary Spites, a literature historian at Furman. She examined how authors like Charlotte Smith, John Clare, and Percy Shelley wrote about what bird songs sounded like. The combination of this was then fused with the avant-garde percussion practices to create a percussion ensemble piece entitled Avian Telemetry. This was also done in conjunction with Omar Carmenatis, the director of percussion at Furman University. Bertner's music provides performers with intimate exposure to the musical activism he seeks to impart onto his music. He intends for the process of one learning and performing his compositions to in turn relate to how they themselves might interact with the natural world around them.
He does not do this overtly, nor does he subject audience members to any pro-environmental doctrines. Rather, he creates a broad soundscape in which he hopes audiences and performers alike will inhabit and use as a space for contemplation, a chance to reflect on how we fit into the world as humans, as artists, and as individuals. Taken as a whole, most of the questions posed by Van Glan in the earlier podcast can be answered very concretely. Both Adams and Bertner choose to memorialize Alaska because the time in which they live there had a profound impact on their lives, continuing to permeate through their compositional output. Even the pieces that don't directly depict Alaska still glorify place and its impact on their creative arts. Their relationships are reciprocal. They are inspired by the landscape and in turn compose music to commemorate it, which also in turn has inspired other composers to memorialize their own places. As they have matured, their methodologies may have changed, but each of their styles are distinct and unique. The pieces outlined in these past few podcasts only begin to scratch the surface in terms of how each composer intersects nature and humanity in their works. A quick scroll through each composer's website yields an abundance of additional music, each steeped with a vastly different interpretation of the human-nature relationship. Despite each composer no longer residing in Alaska today, Adams divides his time between New York and Mexico, while Bertner lives in Charlotte, Virginia. Their music continues to resonate with the appreciation for all landscapes that was nurtured while they lived there. Their music will continue to evolve as sure as the world will continue to turn. Alaska may be the last frontier, but it has not been the last place to exhibit any signs of climate change. It has been gradually accelerating over the past several decades, with the summer of 2019 witnessing record high temperatures. The music of Adams and Bertner eschews any direct political statements, but does allow their music to occasionally be contextualized in such conditions. It is still intended to evoke rather than provoke, however, by doing so, it might allow audiences to reconsider how their lives are impacted by nature and how they in turn might be impacting their surroundings. It is not an indictment of any individual's potential transgressions, nor is it necessarily a call to action, but rather a recontextualization of the role in which these environments play in our everyday lives. At the end of the day, each composer's oeuvre celebrates the earth, remarking on both its beauty and its fragility. Their individual interests and appreciation for the different scientific fields that enlighten us permeate their works. For Adams, his opening chapter in The Place You Go to Listen reveals a newfound understanding and appreciation for the way science and art can intersect with one another. As he writes, quote, Science examines the way things are. Art imagines how things might be. Both begin with perception and aspire to achieve understanding. Both science and art search for truth. Whether we regard truth as objective and demonstrable or subjective and provisional, both science and art lead us toward a broader and deeper understanding of reality. Even as they augment our understanding, science and art heighten our sense of wonder at the strange beauty, astonishing complexity, and miraculous unity of creation. End quote. Despite Alaska appearing vast and mysterious, 
Adams and Bertner managed to make it seem familiar. In fact, understanding their music allows one to realize that their own landscape is just like Alaska. It may not have the endless tundra or snow-capped mountains, but one's surroundings are most likely replete with sounds previously neglected or unheard. They continue to be open-minded, allowing their music to take many forms, which in turn elicit different evocations of place, and thus different interpretations of place by audiences. The music of Adams and Bertner echoes in all of our backyards, waiting for you to listen. Thank you so much for listening this week. This pretty much concludes the summarization of my thesis. You can read the full document on my website, which I've linked to the description of this episode. I'm going to take the next week off to regroup and attempt to pre-record some episodes to be released throughout the school year. Thank you so much for listening thus far, and if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe on Apple or Spotify, and consider rating, reviewing, or sharing this amongst your friends. It really means a lot to me. I'll be back soon. Till then, keep your ears to the earth.